tonight, and I am so thankful for those kids that helped to usher that in. I have uh, yet to get into the pulpit anywhere in the world with tweaked cheeks and five handprints on my bald head. Uh, nothing makes you want to preach like getting tweaked. So just reach over and tweak somebody else while you're at it. I tell you, I've always wanted to tweak some people, but I didn't know it was all right. Uh, but, uh, man, that was good stuff right there. If that don't get you going, something's wrong. Uh, welcome back tonight, and thank you for welcoming me back tonight, and thank you all for that delicious meal. It is always one of the pitfalls for me in revival, is that you all bring us in, you feed us all this food, and then you want me to get up here and speak to you without falling asleep. But I will do my dead-level best, because they've got you awake. I want to keep you there, and revival ain't about sleeping, it's about waking up. It is good to be back, and as I shared this morning, anytime Herbert asks anything of me, I want to be a part of it. Because I love Herbert as a brother. I enjoy picking on him and getting opportunities to publicly do so. And so tonight I just have to say that with all that singing, I kept looking over there to see if you were going to start dancing because that's where I drew the line. <laughs> I love Herbert, but some things you can't unsee. So praise the Lord, he didn't get that far into the Spirit. But i got to tell you, y'all have already been so gracious to us. We already feel at home as we always do here because there is a kindred spirit. We know that the goal of Theresa Baptist Church is the very same as our church and as anyone that calls themselves a true church, and that is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what a good-looking crowd we have tonight. You know, a lot of times on Sunday evenings, we have a slack crowd because people went home, they ate too much, and then they fell asleep in the Lazy Boy. And if they did wake up, they just didn't feel like going to all the trouble of looking good and coming out. Y'all did a good job, so you need to be grateful for that. God has blessed you just by being able to be in this house and hear these young'uns tonight. But uh, what a beautiful thing y'all have here and, uh, and cherish them. That's our future. And I'll tell you, if we can instill those kind of values and thoughts in these kids' lives at that age, the future looks brighter. But as we get back into revival, just for the sake of review, because a lot of you were not here this morning, and let's face it, Repetition is the key to learning. So I'm going to do this every night. We're going to review a little bit and start from where I started this morning. We need to define revival because so often we have a series of services and they couldn't be revival. You couldn't call them that by definition because nothing really changes. If there really is a revival at the Theresa Baptist Church this week, it will mean that you hear the Word of God and you are transformed by the Word of God and you will never be the same again. If you come to a bunch of services between now and Thursday and hear the Word of God and nothing changes, you have wasted your time. Now, I'm not going to say don't come because the Word of God doesn't come back void. It will never return empty. Maybe something will click down the road for you, but I'm telling you, time is short. So listen up. Hear the Word of God. Not me. I'm just a man. But what I'm reading to you is from the man. It is from the Almighty Sovereign of the universe, and it should transform your life. You should be renewed by the transforming of your mind this week because you hear the truth. Not somebody's whitewash version of it, not somebody's politically correct version of it, but the truth. And I will preach it as faithfully as I can. And if you come and listen and are changed, then revival took place. But will you be that one that says, I'm going to be different, I'm going to listen, and I'm going to be a doer of the Word, or are you going to be like most folks that are here tonight and just hear it and say, oh, great message, preacher, and look just like you did before these services started. It's up to you. But revival in its truest form is to revive something. That's what the Webster's Dictionary says. But what does that really mean? If you look a little deeper, to revive something means to breathe new life into something that is dead and or dying. I identify for you this morning five fallen comrades of the faith 
that held us together as a nation for 238 years. Five that have died that became the pillars of the early church. But over those 238 years, at least in our country, but I believe all over the world, they became old-fashioned. And so they died. We didn't nourish them. We didn't feed them. And as I shared with you this morning, if you were here, the only thing that will live is that which you feed. And so we didn't feed these things. They died a miserable death of starvation. Those five fallen comrades were righteousness, restraint, respect, responsibility, and reason. Those five things are dead or dying in America and all over the world today. Think about it. Think about it as I say them. Do you believe that righteousness is alive and kicking today? Righteousness equals holiness. And I'm here to tell you, it no longer exists as God intended it. And it's sad. And I'm speaking to you, the church. We can't expect those who don't know Christ, who don't have a moral compass, to be righteous. But God can expect us, His kids, to be righteous. In fact, He commands it, and I'll prove it to you later. But it's dead and gone. And it died because we killed restraint. There is no more restraint. We've cast off restraint, and we do whatever feels good. And we'll talk about that tomorrow, that we have killed restraint because we lost respect for God and everything else. There is no more respect. Nobody respects anything or anyone. You don't believe that. Just look around you. Look at how the young people speak to their parents these days. Look at how people who are in politics act and speak these days. You know, I was talking to Brother Chris earlier. You know, if you think about politics, it means a polite and efficient way to do things. Really? Boy, that don't exist anymore. And it's because there is no respect whatsoever. And that's dead because we murdered responsibility. Nobody takes responsibility for their actions, and the greatest, latest time in America is passing the buck. It wasn't my fault. And as I shared with you this morning, that ain't going to fly. You're going to stand before a holy God and give an account for your life, not yours and somebody else's who didn't do it right. And so you can say what you want, but you better learn to take responsibility if there's to be any hope for this nation or even Christianity in general. And we, that's dead because reason is gone. You know, common sense is a thing of the past. It really is. Look around you at the decisions, the things that people are doing, and then wondering why it doesn't work. It's because wisdom is no longer employed. Common sense is dead as a doornail. Doesn't the Bible say something about us getting wiser but weaker? Well, we've got all the head knowledge in the world. We have at our fingertips on our telephones these days and our tablets and our computers all the knowledge of all the ages, but we are stupider than we've ever been because we do not exercise common sense. And I'll tell you something. I know a lot of smart fellas. I know fellas got more degrees on their wall than I got good sense. But I'll tell you, they, don't, they, couldn't, they could not get themselves out of a paper sack if they had to because they just don't exercise any common sense, and I'd rather be beside that man who has common sense or that lady who exercises wisdom than all the book smarts in the world. But it doesn't exist anymore. All of these five things died. Why? Because we don't have a proper relationship with God. We've forgotten who He was, and we've forgotten who we are in light of that. And I'm going to tell you something. The whole duty of man, according to Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, in Ecclesiastes 12:13, the whole purpose of living in life is to fear God and to keep His commandments. Oh, people have been searching for the meaning of life for years, but it's right there in Ecclesiastes 12:13, to fear, to love, to respect, to have a relationship with your Creator and do what He says. Why? Because He knows what He's talking about. Nobody or nothing else does. 
And if we miss that, if we miss the fact that Jesus said, that's why you're here, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, you have failed miserably on the reason you exist, and you've broken the first and greatest of all the commandments. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 22:37 through 40, that not only is it the first and greatest commandment, that that and loving your neighbor as yourself are the ones that if you take care of that, everything else falls into place. So why is it that we wonder that these things are dead when we killed it by not getting the number one reason that we exist right? And I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about how much you can pray. I'm not talking about how wonderful you look at church, how many Sunday school classes you teach. I'm not even talking about being the most fantastic preacher in the world because none of that matters. That's religion. What I'm talking about is do you have a genuine relationship, a intimate walk with the sovereign of the universe because that's why you were created. If you miss that one, give up on the rest of them. But it's because of that root disease, a lack of a relationship with God, that all of those others, righteousness, restraint, respect, responsibility, and reason, have died. And it'll be up to us this week whether we decide to breathe new life into them or just bury them for good. And I'm here to tell you, if you think it can't get any worse, decide this week to do nothing. Decide this week just to listen to God's Word and then go out of here doing nothing, and I promise you it will get worse. I want you to think back over the landscape of popular history over the last five years alone. Have you seen a big change like I have? I said it this morning, and I don't say it to be flippant or to use curse words. I'm saying it because it's a fact. We are sending our world to hell in a handbasket that we crafted with our own hands. We've done that. And in five years, I've seen more changes than I've seen in my entire life. None of these things exist, and it's sad. But if we decide to this week, just this group of people can turn this world on its ear if we will just decide to get these things right, beginning with a solid relationship with God. How do we get that? I'm glad you asked. I said, if you want to get that relationship with God that you're supposed to, first of all, read the love letter. I read you the sappiest, sweetest love letter you could have ever heard this morning given to me by my wife several years ago. I love pulling that stuff out. It makes me feel like somebody. It makes me feel like I've done something right. It shows me what she likes, what she expects, and by default what she wouldn't like and wouldn't expect. Because All because of a love letter. You've got his right here at your fingertips. And if you don't have one, you let me know. I'll get Herbert to buy you one. No, seriously. Everybody's got a Bible, don't they? Most people have Bibles on every shelf in their house. I've got every version, every kind of gift Bible that you can imagine. People have given to me throughout the years. But when I go to these third world countries, they're just dying to get their hands on one of those little Gideon's workers' testaments, and it's the greatest treasure of their life. Just to have the Word of God, we neglect it. We take it for granted. If you want to have a closer relationship with Him, read His love letter. If the whole duty of man is to fear, to love, to respect, to revere a holy God and to keep His commandments, how do we expect to know how to do that if we don't know what He expects? Get into the love letter. It'll make you feel special too when you realize that He loved you so much that He gave His only begotten Son. And if you would believe in Him, you'd never have to die but have everlasting life. And if you really get a hold of that in that love letter, you're going to want to know the rest of it so that you can make Him happy because you're going to get it. Without Him, you wouldn't have life and you'd have no hope when life is over. 
So get in the love letter, but also get into James 4 and join the James 4 club. I talked about it. We join every kind of club in the world to save a little money or to get some benefits in life, to get some perks or something. And we'll pay all kinds of these membership fees to get these little perks in life. And sometimes they got you because you pay the membership fee, and quite frankly, they know you're not going to get enough benefits out of it to make the money. Otherwise, they wouldn't have the club. I told you about this Sky Club, and I've told my folks at Antioch before. I was flying to Africa one time, and this lady was trying to get me to join a $54 a year Sky Club. Well, I, what does that get me, ma'am? She said, well, you get free alcoholic beverages. I'm like, eh, that, 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 got, you don't got me yet because I don't drink it. It's not good for you. I don't mess with it. She said, well, and you can get to upgrade a seat every so often. And I just looked her square in the eye and said, does it get me a pillow bigger than a Tic Tac? Because that's what I want on a flight. She said, no, pillars are all the same. I didn't want to join it. But we do join all kind of clubs, don't we? I mean, think about it. We join all kind of clubs. We get into all kind of social media pro- programs and all kind of junk for the benefits we'll get out of it, right? Well, here's, here's the cool thing. James 4 Club, you get to join free because the membership dues have been paid by Jesus Christ on the cross, written right on the bill It says paid in full with his blood. And all you got to do is do what James 4 says. And the benefit is a good standing, a right standing with God, a clear conscience, a clean soul, a closeness to God that you cannot compare to anything else. All you got to do is what it says in James 4, 7 through 10. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Why wouldn't we want to submit to God? He's the winner. He's the commander-in-chief. He is the sovereign of the universe. He's the one that gave you life and eternal life. Why wouldn't we want to fall in line behind Him and follow Him? Oh, we'll follow a charismatic leader. We'll follow somebody that's a good speaker. We'll follow somebody that has like values than we. But they're all human. They're faulty. Don't be following them, folks. Submit yourself to God. Willingly fall in line. Further, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I asked this question this morning. I want to ask it again tonight. How many of you get picked on by the devil? Raise your hand tonight. Don't be ashamed. If you ain't getting picked on by the devil, come on down at the invitation and get saved, please. Because if you are saved, you're a threat to him. He can't stand you. He knows he can't get you back, but he wants to sidetrack you and tempt you into doing all kind of garbage that you know is wrong. So if you're not being tempted, it tells me one of two things. Either you ain't walking close with the Lord at all or you don't know him at all. So come on and get saved if you ain't being picked on. What I'm saying is we're all being picked on as God's kids because the enemy hates you with a passion. You want him to leave you alone? Stand up to him. Now, you can't do this in your own strength, but I promise you nothing has befallen anyone, according to my Bible, that you can't walk away from. No temptation has befallen any man that is too strong for you to resist. He says simply, just stand up to him, tell him to go to hell. I'm not going to do what you're tempting me to do. Oh, he's real good at making it look nice, making it look like something that we really would want. But let me tell you this. The devil's way has one end, and it ain't the one you want. Just tell him, I have nothing to do with you. I don't want that. And you say, you don't understand. It ain't that easy. Don't I? Am I not human? Do you think when I surrendered to the ministry and got ordained to preach that I quit getting tempted? Oh, no. Those efforts were ramped up a millionfold. I have faced it all. I have faced people trying to throw money at me that didn't come from the right place. I have faced women trying to throw themselves at me, and I am nothing to have, I'm telling you. I have faced all kinds of garbage. But listen, I'm nobody. I may fall tomorrow, but I can tell you so far I've been able to say, no, that looks pretty, but it's just the devil in disguise. And I was able to resist. And you know what? You resist him, he will flee from you. He'll tuck tail and run like a screaming little girl. 
And I'm going to tell you, I hate him. That's what I want. I want him to be humiliated and be running the other way just simply because I say, you know what? I'd rather make God happy. I'm going to submit to him. I'm going to resist you. Further, in verse 8, he says, draw near to him, and he'll draw near to you. Basically, if you want this relationship and you run after him, he ain't running nowhere. He's going to be right there running closer to you and just drawing you in closer and closer. I'm going to tell you something. When I met this woman right here, I chased her, and she didn't run too hard. I'm just going to tell you. But I pursued that relationship. I'll never forget when we were first dating. She was working up there at Lowe's Foods. It was birds at the time. And she was up there checking out, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to get all decked out. I'm going up and I'm going to impress this girl. Just act like I'm just sort of sliding through. Man, I was Rico Suave. I'm walking through there. She's up there checking out. And she looks down the aisle, and it, I was like, oh, no. I can't just look like I'm standing in here to see her. That ain't cool. So I turned around. I grabbed the first thing I saw. It was a toilet duck. <laughs> Y'all know them little blue tablets that look like huge breath mints you throw down in the toilet and makes the water blue? It was one of them shaped like a duck. Well, I'd done been busted, so what do I do? I did what any man would do. I walked up to the counter, and I checked out and paid for my toilet duck. <laughs> now, how cool do you think she, she think I was at that point? But, you know, man, I would have done anything to get a hold of that woman. I had loved her and talked to her for two years about my love life and the problems I was having with all her friends. <laughs> and it just hit me. It was her that was giving me the advice, making everything go wrong so she could have me. <laughs> hmm. I guess she was pursuing a relationship too, huh? But I want you all to think about that person, that love of your life, and how you pursued them and how they pursued you. You want a close relationship with God? Start running after Him. It says right here real simply in verse 8, run to God and He's going to be right there. He's going to get closer to you. If you want the relationship, He wants to give it to you because that's why He created you to love you and to love you with all His heart. And He proved that He does. Further in verse 8, cleanse your hands and your hearts. Get the outward appearance and the inward appearance matching. Love Him so much that the actions you commit in life look so much like Him, people don't even have to hear you say, I'm a Christian. They see you coming and they say, that's one of God's kids right there. You shouldn't have to witness to people by opening your mouth. They should see it in your lifestyle, but they do not. And that's why they're not in church. Well, I hear it all the time. I ain't coming to church. It's full of hypocrites. Well, my answer to that is always, well, there's always room for one more. Because to some level, we're all hypocrites, are we not? But we should be working with all we are to make sure that we are so genuine that we're not somebody's flimsy excuse for not being in the house of God. But I'm going to tell you, you can be that excuse. It's not going to hold up when they stand before a holy God because they will have to stand and give an account for their life. But what a shame it would be if they can use you as part of their excuse for not being in church and learning about the salvation of Jesus Christ. Because they know that you're a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a preacher, or whatever at the church. They know you're here every time the doors are open with your tie on or whatever it may be, looking the part. But as soon as you walk out there, they know you don't belong to the Lord because you're acting like the devil. Or if you do, you're doing a poor job of it. So be sure you've cleansed your hands and your hearts. It begins with the heart. Purify yourselves. Make sure your thoughts and your motives are pure and line up with the Word of God, which is what we talk about later tonight. Finally, in joining this club, verse 9 says that we need to get sick over our sin. We need to really be broken that we've messed up so royally. 
We are responsible for the decline of this nation. And when I say we, again, I ain't speaking French. I'm talking about me and you. We, the moral majority, sat by and became silent as the immoral minority stood up, spoke up, and are winning battles left and right, even as late as last week when despicable things changed in our nation. And we blame it on the politicians, but who put them there? Who stood for this garbage that they're doing? Who let them lie to us over and over and over and yet kept them in their jobs? I saw a sign on the street the other day. And listen, I'm not trying to wax politics on you, but I'm just going to tell you I saw this and it really caught my eye. It says, fire Kay Hagan. Well, I'm down with that. I don't know how you feel about Kay, but I know how I do. And I'm down with firing Kay. That's fine. We need to fire the whole mess of them. But because we didn't stand up and do so, because we didn't help them remember you're there to represent us and what the majority wants, they want. We should be ashamed and broken. It says we should lament and have true sorrow for our sin. We should be afflicted. We should be almost sick to our stomach of what we've done. We should mourn what's happened to our nation because of our sin. We should weep and grieve for this, but don't get stuck in it. Get sick over it, grieve over it, mourn over it, but then get up off your knees, wipe away the tears, and get busy submitting to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to Him, cleansing your hearts, and your outward appearances so that you look more like Him. And finally, humble yourselves before a holy God. Bring yourself low, remembering who you are and who you're not. We are such prideful, stiff-necked creatures. Every day of our lives, we look at God and say, I know what your Word says, but you know what? i got a better plan. How ridiculous is that? But we do it. And that's why we are where we are. So it's time for us to make our relationship with God our main focus. That behind us, it's time to get into tonight's message. Because we didn't get that part right, the relationship with God, we killed righteousness. Because, see, if you don't understand who righteousness is and what it looks like, you're certainly not going to do it. You're not going to nourish it so it's going to die a cruel death of starvation, and that's what's happened to righteousness. But what is righteousness? It's real simple. You want a good working definition of righteousness that can't be found in a dictionary. It's just this. It's being or doing right by God's definition. That's righteousness. Being or doing right by God's definition because God, by definition, is righteousness. The nickname of righteousness, another way of putting it, is holiness. And it is a command that we be so. I'll prove that to you in just a moment. I'll never forget years ago I saw a guy walking down the mall he had on a T-shirt and had a bunch of writing on the front and just a little bit on the back. It said, you know, I, have, I am always right. Once I thought I made a mistake, but I was mistaken. Process that for a minute. I'm always right. Once I thought I made a mistake, but I was mistaken. And on the back it said, perfect. Whew, where'd you get that thing, Herbert? Terrible. I'm kidding. That's a humble man right there. But I'll tell you, don't we think like that sometimes? Don't we? Don't we think that we got it all together and we're always right and everybody else is always wrong? That's why marriages fall apart. It's why relationships of all kinds fall apart. It's why churches fall apart. Because rather than figuring out what's right and doing what's right according to God's definition, we're thinking about us. Boy, doesn't that fly in the face of Proverbs 3? that we lean not on our own understanding but acknowledge God in all our ways so that He can direct our paths. And what we do and how we are 
would be right. Oh, boys, we think about righteousness. I want you to think in your mind right now, please, just in your mind, don't call out names, but I want you to think about all the people in your sphere of influence, all the people you've ever met, whether it be family, friends, or acquaintances, all the people that you know from public polity, all the people that you know from being public figures or pop stars or whatever. Think of everybody you ever knew of. How many of them would you say are genuinely righteous holy people. You ever thought about it like that? I bet you could count them on one hand. I bet you're struggling to think of five or six genuinely holy, righteous people who are doing things right, who are acting right by God's definition. You see, righteousness doesn't have room for fluidity. It is rigid. It's right here in black and white. You can call that old-fashioned if you want. I call it God's truth. Right is right, and wrong is wrong. And all this gray area that we've inserted is anything but righteousness and holiness. Sadly, righteousness is dead because we've bought into it. Even most Christians have bought into this thing called moral relativism. That's just a fancy uh, terminology I learned in seminary years ago to say this. If it feels right, I'm going to do it. Haven't we bought into that? Think about it. Think about how drastically things have changed because our thinking has changed. And, oh, if it works for me, I'm going to do it. I ain't hurting nobody else. Baloney. No man's island to himself. You've heard of the butterfly effect. I believe in that. I believe a butterfly can flap its wings somewhere in South America and make a difference right here tonight. You say, oh, that's ridiculous. I encourage you to get a book by a man named Andy Andrews and read The Butterfly Effect. Everything you do and say affects someone else unless you just don't know anybody else or you're never around anybody else. And clearly, if you're here tonight, that's not the case. Every decision you make affects someone or something else. But we've bought into this thing of, I'm not hurting nobody. I can do what I want. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Just like the one that says, I'm not as bad as Miss So-and-so. Good gracious, really? Is that your excuse? Is that what you're going to tell God who commands you to be holy when you stand before Him and He says, how could you have done such things? Well, I ain't as bad as such and such. How far do you think that's going to get you? I mean, seriously, if you stand before a judge, even in a court of law today, you've killed somebody, brutally murdered somebody. Are you going to look at him and say, well, I didn't do as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer and eat him when I got done? I mean, where's that going to get you? But that's the faulty thinking we bought into. I ain't as bad as Miss So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so. You try that. It ain't going to get you far. Here's another good one that we use for not attempting to be more holy, not attempting to breathe life into righteousness. I can't be perfect, so why try? Really? Is that the best you got? I can't be perfect either. But I, like Paul, am going to fight the fight and run the race with endurance, trying to be the very best I can be, not to earn God's favor, not to try to buy my salvation. That's ludicrous but to tell him thank you for what he did do for me. See, I would submit to you that if you really know the God that I know, and he did for you what he did for me, and he did, by the way, then it break your heart not to try to be your very best for him. My youngest son, Micah, is something else. That boy's got more energy than ten of me. And that's saying something because i still got a little bit of energy. But that boy's wide open. But sometimes he messes up just like we all do. 
And he comes to me before I can even get on him most of the time, and he's got tears in his eyes. And he's like, Daddy, I'm so sorry I disappointed you. Man, it's hard to discipline that, and I think he uses that against me too. But I like that way of thinking. He loves his daddy so much, respects his daddy so much, that he's sorry he did something wrong, but he's even sorrier that he disappointed us. It breaks that child's heart. And I tell you, for me, the best punishment I can give him is to tell him, son, I'm so disgusted, so disappointed in what you did. And it just breaks his little heart in two. When's the last time that you thought about it that way? And when you mess up, as you will, fall short of God's glory and His holiness, His righteousness, that it just broke your heart to think that you had hurt your heavenly Father. I hope that he will put that into practice in his life, spiritually speaking, not just emotionally speaking with his dad in the world. We can't be perfect. But it should break our hearts when we fall short of the glory of God, and we should be willing to say, God, I'm so sorry. I am trying to be as holy as I can. Why? Because he said do it. I would contend to you that we as God's kids can breathe new life into righteousness because as I told you this morning, if you've read Hosea 13 like me, Ezekiel 37, the Gospels of the book of Revelation, you understand our God's so big that death is not final with God. I think righteousness is dead or at least real close. I mean, it's on its last leg if it's alive at all. But I think we as God's kids right here can breathe new life into it if we will try our best to understand that God's command from Leviticus 11, 44 through 45 says this, For I am the Lord your God. Now, you've got to get that first. That's the relationship. I am the Lord your God. You're not God, but I am. Therefore, sanctify yourselves. Clean your act up, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. I am the Lord that brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God didn't bring us out, up out of the land of Egypt, but He delivered you from a very real and a very hot hell by the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, for me, when I understand that, I want to hear what He's saying because that's not a suggestion in Leviticus 11. He's saying, Be ye holy, for I am holy. He said, I can't be like God. No, but you can try a whole lot harder than you've been trying. We can breathe new life into righteousness. Move with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you will, for the bulk of our text tonight. We must, in the language of Leviticus 11, strive for holiness. You ain't going to be perfect, but I guarantee you, I promise you, you can be more close, uh, closer to perfect than you are. Would you agree? If you believe you can do much, much better in the realm of holiness, would you be willing to humble yourself tonight in front of this church and say, Amen? Amen. I'll jump in there with you. How do you get it? How do you get holiness? How do you achieve that righteousness that God says, I expect of you? First of all, beg for it. Now, you're already in 1 Peter 1, but I'm going to quote for you Psalm 51.10. I want you to remember the context of Psalm 51. David has seen Bathsheba bathing naked on her roof. Now, ladies, let me just start right there. Don't get on the roof bathing naked. It's dangerous, and it's going to cause a problem for somebody, okay? But Bathsheba, for whatever reason, gets naked and is bathing on the roof. Well, of course, David, he's a man. We're visually stimulated. He's a meathead like every other man. He sees her and he's like, oh, wow. 
I like that. And so he then proceeds to set in motion a series of sins far from holiness so that he can have this woman. He didn't resist the devil at all, did he? Didn't draw near to the Lord. Didn't get on his knees and pray. This same God that had delivered him from the Philistine giant, all he did was say, hey, who is that? Oh, that, that chick's hot. Who is that? Oh, that's Bathsheba. You know, she's already married. Oh, really? Who's her husband? Uriah. Oh. Isn't he in the army? Yeah. Send him to the front. So he conspires to kill him. David might as well just put a sword right through his heart because he put him on the front line so he'd be killed, so he could have his wife wrongfully in the eyes of God. Well, that's anything but righteousness. So this man has committed murder. He's committed adultery and fornication all in one fell swoop. That's pretty rough, isn't it? Raise your hand if you've done all three of them in one day. Could Please don't nobody raise the hand. I've said that before. And one of these days, I'm probably going to just fall out because somebody's going to say, what I'm getting at is ain't none of y'all done all of that. None of you. I know just about every one of you. And some of you made some good mistakes, but nothing like that. He's done all that. And yet, David goes to God and he says these words, Create in me a clean heart and renew within me a right spirit. I do not get out of the bed in the morning without saying that. And I don't just say it. I'm begging God for it. God, help me to achieve a right standing before you today. Help me not to lean on my own wisdom because I'm a knucklehead. Show me the way to go. Create in me a clean heart and renew within me a right spirit. God, the things I do and say, the things I am today, may they be right according to your definition. And you know what? God answered that prayer. David went down in history as a man after God's own heart. Even though he was a murderous, sexually immoral man, he was truly sorry and repentant, and he begged for righteousness. That's where you start. But then once you've begged for it, I'm convinced that God's going to start giving it to you. Now, you're going to have your responsibility. Once you've begged for it, I know that John 5, 14 and 15 are true. We have this confidence that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that if He hears us, whatsoever we ask, we also know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. Here's what He's saying. If you beg Him that you have a clean heart and a right spirit, do you think God wants that for you? You better believe it. John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says, If you ask something that God wants you to have, He's going to hear you. And He's going to give it to you. But do not assume that all of a sudden He's going to clean up the heart and make the spirit right, and that's where it ends. He will do that if you ask it in sincerity. But then you have your human responsibility, which we find so easily in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Let's read that. I'm going to read it aloud, but just follow along with me. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for grace that is to be brought unto you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which calleth you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed, with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ 
as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. You sound, That sounded really poetic, but what's he getting at? What I'm getting at is that after you have begged God for righteousness, here's your part. You begged him for it. He's going to give you a clean heart, going to wash away all your sins. Everything in your past will stay in your past as long as you let it. If there's genuine repentance, you will be in a right standing with God at that point. But then you must follow it up. He's saying once that's happened, gird up the loins of your mind. What in the world? I didn't know I had loins in my mind. Did you? I mean, I thought loin was something I love to throw on the grill and chow down with some Worcestershire sauce. Well, he's using an imagery that they would have understood. In those days, they basically wore dresses, men alike. I mean, men and women both, they had something that flowed all the way to the ground. And in order to get somewhere quicker, they had to get all this stuff that was flowing and dragging around that might trip them up, and they had to get it up out of the way. So they'd pull it up, and I am not going to demonstrate it, but I will just show you that they would grab all the loose stuff, pull it up, and tie it up in a knot right up in here. They would gird it up and get it out of the way so that they could run with more freedom. What he's saying is gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, get all of that garbage and junk that's dragging your mind down and slowing you down in your relationship with God out of the way. Tie it up in a glad bag and throw it in the garbage and leave it there. Gird up the loins of your mind. Remember Romans chapter 12. Man, we need to be transformed by the renewing of this thing. And it's renewed by the love letter. Boy, we're coming full circle, aren't we? We need to get the junk, get it out of the way so that we can do things right. Righteousness doesn't just happen. If you keep filling your mind with the garbage you're filling it with, it will trip you up every which way you go. I have heard this so many times. I can watch them kind of movies that's got nudity and illicit sex and stuff in them, and it doesn't faze me. What? You know that three-pound ball of mush between your ears is an onboard computer, and it's just like the ones we have today sitting on our desk. You program it with junk, what you going to get out of it? Junk. So don't tell yourself that lie. I've heard it many times. I can watch a movie with a bunch of cursing, and I don't curse. No, but those words are filed right there in your frontal lobe, and I'm going to tell you, it ain't going to take much to get them out. It's junk. It's slowing you down. It's keeping you from a good relationship with the Lord, because I'm going to tell you, the Holy Spirit and sin do not coexist. What communication has darkness with light? None. We need to stop taking in the mess, gird up the loins of our mind if we expect to be anywhere close to holy. But I'll tell you, I want you to think about the entertainment you took in just through this past week. And I'm going to tell you, do you understand how many millions of copies this book called Fifty Shades of Grey has sold? And I'm going to tell you what Fifty Shades of Grey is. It's Fifty Shades of Sin. It is pornography. And yet it's sold millions and millions and millions of copies. And some of you might have one. That ain't holiness, and it is not going to usher you into it. I stood in our very parking lot at Antioch Baptist Church. Somebody opened their hatch of their car, and there it lay. And they flipped it over. Oh, preacher, you ain't supposed to see that. It don't matter what the preacher sees. God knew it. And I'm telling you, if you put garbage in, it's going to be garbage out. And as you're nodding your heads, don't get too high and mighty. 
Because I'll bet you some of you sit around and watch slop operas during the day too. I'm going to tell you now, I hate to admit this, but I watched me some Young and the Restless years ago. I liked Victor Newman. That dude didn't play. You didn't cross Victor. You know, he was the ultimate. He was going to get it done one way or another. But I'll tell you, in the course of history, I could turn that on now and see five minutes of it, and everybody's with somebody different. Every last one of them done slept with every last one of them. It's slop operas. It's junk. Oh, and don't nod in your head still. Hold on. How many of you ever read these Harlequin novels? I mean, Harlequin novels. Filth. Fellas. How many of you got the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition at home? Oh, I just get it for the articles. I've seen one of them things years ago. I didn't know there was no articles. I couldn't get that far. I mean, I saw Kathy Ireland and her little, I guess you'd call it a bikini. It looked like dental floss. I didn't want to read nothing. But I'm going to tell you all something. That ain't holiness. I'm joking about it, but we need to be weeping about it because we justify that garbage. We need to gird up the loins of our mind, get that right, junk in, junk out. Be sober. That don't mean don't drink. Now, I wouldn't encourage any alcohol in your life, but let's just face it, alcohol is not the sin, drunkenness is. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying be that one who is in control and focused. Be sober-minded to the end for that grace that is brought into you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, you need to be cross-eyed. Say, boy, I, cross-eyed? I don't want to be cross-eyed. You need to be. You need to be so focused on the cross of Jesus Christ that you are looking at that always. See, our focus is off. Ain't no wonder everything else is off. You can't be holy if you ain't focused on holiness itself. Remember old Peter. About 3 in the morning, Jesus comes walking out on a stormy sea. Peter sees him along with the other disciples. They're freaking out. What in the world? Hey, that's Jesus. Oh, I love Peter. He made a lot of mistakes, but boy, he tried, didn't he? Peter said, Lord, I want to come to you. Jesus said, come on. And as long as he had his focus on Jesus Christ, he was walking on water too. And you will as well. But once you let this junk that we've already been alluding to and a million other flavors of it get in there and cloud your vision and you get your eyes off Jesus Christ, you ain't even got a chance at holiness because nothing else is. He is the only one. Moving right along, we need to do this as obedient children. What is that? What is that in 2014, an obedient child? We don't teach them what obedience is. We don't understand what obedience is. But I'll bet you anybody in here over about 30 years old understands that when you were growing up, you were going to be obedient even if it had to be forced. I mean, look, I fought my parents left and right, but I did what they wanted me to do eventually. I finally learned it's easier to just go on and do it than to fight it because I'm going to do it one way or a dog on another. And as obedient children, you need to understand You're going to glorify God one way or another, even if it means Him taking you home prematurely so you'll quit embarrassing the name of Jesus Christ. We need to, as obedient children, not be forced to get rid of this garbage that we're taking into our mind, these things that are taking us off task and off focus. We need to willingly, as obedient children, do this. Not fashioning or not creating yourselves after the former lust in your ignorance. Boy, I'm going to drop a bomb on you right now. You are being told every Sunday here at this church, I am convinced by Herbert Brown from the Word of God, what is right and what is wrong. You can't claim ignorance. It's just like riding up down the road and committing some kind of crime. 
You can say you didn't know it was a crime all day long, but it's your responsibility to know what the laws are. And they're going to look at you and say, well, ignorance is no defense. And it's not going to be for you. You need to make sure that you are being fashioned after the likeness of Jesus Christ, that you are what is right and you look right and are acting right because you've got to understand that's what he expects from you. And you can't claim ignorance. Moving right along, because or but as he hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Is that talking about your conversations? Not at all. That word translates out of the Greek into the word conduct. In other words, how you present yourself, how you act. Would people put you in that short list that we were talking about of those who are genuinely righteous and genuinely holy? Could anybody say that of you? Think about it. But God said, in all your conduct, be righteous, because I'm holy and I expect it of you. And let me just ask you, logically speaking, do you think that God would ask you to do or be something that you absolutely could not? How fair would that be? He hasn't, and he won't. He said, be holy. Be as much like me as humanly possible, because I'm going to help you do it, and I expect it of you. And then we see that in verse 16, a direct quote back from Leviticus 11. Because it's written, be ye holy, for I'm holy. Again, not a suggestion, it is an imperative, a command. And if you call on the Father, who without respect or partiality of persons, judge according to every man's work, pass the time here sojourning in fear. We need to so love, so respect, so revere the Lord that we understand that what time we have here should be passed being holy. We need to breathe new life into righteousness. Why? The rest of this passage tells us. Verse 18, Because you know that you weren't redeemed with gold or silver or corruptible things or garbage or by any religion or traditions that came from your Father. That's not what redeemed you. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ who was that lamb, that sacrificial lamb without spot. Folks, do you get that? I'm not sure we get that. I said this morning, I love y'all. I mean that. I love my community. I love the world. I love people. Dedicated my whole life to that. I love y'all. I mean it. But if you were to say, prove it, give me your firstborn son and let me murder him. Let me kill him dead as a doornail. And then I'll believe you. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I couldn't do it. I love you as much as any other human can, but I couldn't do that. God did. And I just think we have thumbed our nose at that. We talk about it. We sing about it. But have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought about your child being beaten and spit on and cursed and beaten so badly that he was at the point of death just from the beating? you ever thought about your child being nailed to a tree where he died of asphyxiation because he couldn't get a breath? Really, have you ever thought about that? That's what it costs for your salvation. You weren't redeemed by silver or gold or garbage or by tradition or by religion, but by the blood of Christ Himself. And this was foreordained. I think about that thing. Before God even really got going in creation, He thought about that. He said, yeah, that's how we're going to have to fix it. And yet he created us and loved us anyway and followed through with that plan. Before the foundation of the world, he knew he'd have to do that for you. Now, that's love. 
That's love. He and Jesus had existed in infinitum throughout eternity. And he's got to watch him be beaten and cruelly killed like that. That's love. And then he goes on to say, If we believe in God that raised him up from the dead and give him glory, your faith and hope can and will be in God. All of this to say, it's time for us to do the least we should be doing for the one who did that for us. Romans 12:1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What Paul's saying there to the church in Rome is this. If you get what Jesus did for you, as we've been talking about all night, the least you can do is try to live according to his statutes and commandments. You say you love the Lord. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You will be holy as I am holy. You will be righteous. And if we do this, we can revive our beloved righteousness that was almost dead, if not gone. And if people really saw that in you, and when I ask that question, how, how many people can you name that are righteous or holy? And they start listing you and a dozen others, they're going to say, oh, you know what? There's hope. There's still hope. So tonight, this invitation is yours to repent and to revive righteousness. It's time for you to say no more to a lackluster, lukewarm Christian walk of filth and of sin and of compromise that is robbing you of blessings, robbing our country of blessings, that is killing the Christian faith. It's keeping folks out of church. Beyond that, it's embarrassing the kingdom and it's breaking God's heart. Tonight, I ask you this simple question. If you couldn't be listed on that handful of people that people know you and say, yep, that's a righteous and holy man or woman, that's time to breathe new life into that. Now it's in your lap. You can no longer claim ignorance. What are you going to do with it?